Well, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. It's good to see you guys. My name is Austin. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited for this morning. We've been uh, walking through the book of Ephesians since the beginning of the year, and this is our last Sunday in this book. It's been amazing to, to journey through it. And so by means of recap, uh, the first three chapters that we studied were just like, it was basically an invitation to sit right? Like, hey, here's your identity. Here's what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to work harder. You don't need to try more, whatever. No, like Jesus has done everything he possibly can for you and in you. And so you simply get to rest and sit in your identity with Jesus, right? Like that's what he's done. And the next three chapters, the last few, like month or two that we've been studying it have been uh, an invitation to walk, right? So we just sit in our identity and then now we get to walk in activity, right? Gospel activity. And so this is what it looks like in the home uh, with friendships on all those different le- levels, right? And comment, uh, commentarians have actually looked at this book and said these last uh, really 10 verses are basically changed from an invitation to sit and stand, uh, uh, sit and walk to an invitation to stand, right? Like this is the last invitation. So we sit in the identity of the gospel. We, uh, we, we walk in the activity of the gospel. And then lastly, we stand firm, right? So this is what we're getting to. And, and uh, I don't feel like we always get to actually, we get scriptures that actually define kind of who Satan is and what his means are. So this is a really, really important message for us to understand. And I would just say, just know that Satan hates this sermon, like, Satan hates what's going to happen in this next 35 minutes or so. And so I just invite you, would you pray for me? Like, this is going to battle. This is like in the ring right now saying Jesus is victorious. He's better. Everything I'm going to say, everything we're learning right now, right now Satan's going to want to blind you. Satan's going to want to uh, put this aspect on you that says, like, don't listen, check your phone, check out, whatever. And I'm just saying, let's hone in. Like, this is spiritual warfare. This is a battle we're having as a church. And let's learn so that we might stand and sing in Jesus' victory. Amen? So in light of that, we're going to be in Ephesians 6, like it was just read, so you can open your Bibles there. But uh, as you're getting there, I'll ask you this. When's the last time you uh, put a uniform on? You remember, like, last time you put a uniform on? Well, I am originally from California. Moved to McCook, Nebraska, I know that's weird, when I was in middle school. And so uh, my eighth grade year, I decided, hey, I'm going to go out for the football team, right? And so I try out for football because that's just what you do in Nebraska, right? So I'm excited. I'm like, I don't even know what position that is. I don't know. It doesn't make sense that there's a quarterback and a fullback and a halfback. I don't understand it. But anyways, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm excited. So I go out for football. And so I get the, you know, I put on the helmet and I get the pads on and I get the jersey and I get the pants and the cleats. And I'm like, I got to be honest with you, I thought I looked pretty good. Like, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, I felt invincible. Like, I dare you, bully, to try and walk up on me and give me a wedgie now. You know, don't even try it. And so I'm like, I just feel invincible, right? And so I'm excited. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And, and so this first week, we've got practice drills and all that stuff. And so we're going through it. And, uh, and I have no idea what I'm doing. All I know is I look good, right? And so I'm going through, and, and, and I get lined some, somehow. Now, you've got to, like, email my coach because he puts me in as a middle linebacker. Your boy's never been a middle linebacker, right? It's like, I'm either warming the bench or I'm like a corner or something like that, you know? And so I'm like, I'm, so I'm standing there and, and the line opens up and a guy named Dion gets handed the ball. 
Now, you know those guys that uh, hit their growth spurts like four years earlier than everyone else and, and, and look like way older than everyone else? Yeah, that's Dion. Like he's fast and he's brutal. And so he gets the ball and, and, and the line opens up and Dion's like, and he's coming towards me. And I realize it, it's, like, it's like I'm the only thing between him and the end zone, right? So it's either him or me. And so in my brilliant 14-year-old mind, I literally close my eyes and just open my arms like this, you know? <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm literally being woken up by my coaches and they're checking if my neck's broke, okay? Let's just say, dude didn't go easy on the short guy from California, okay? He just laid me out, okay? Now, I thought, I'm like, I'm like this is crazy, right? Because I had this sweet equipment and I had all this stuff and I looked good, but I had no idea we we're actually going to be tackling, right? I thought we were throwing the football around, playing catch like my dad used to do in the backyard, you know? But the dude comes out and starts tackling me. Like, it was like a whole other thing. And so I quickly learned this was a battle. Right? This was a battle, and I know that's funny, but I think, I think a lot of us actually are doing the same thing with the Christian life, right? Like, like we read Ephesians 6, and we think, oh, it's so cool, man. I look so good in the helmet of salvation. Man, these shoes look really good on my feet. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to memorize this verse. And it's like, that's not enough. Like, we, we, we don't realize that, 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 that we're in an actual battle. Like, that we don't realize that we're not just given this armor to look cool and, and, and memorize for the sake of memory or anything like that. No, we're actually called to a real battle. Like, there's a real army that's battling against us. And so here's, here's why this morning matters. Whether you realize it or not, there is a war waging for your soul. Right? There's a real enemy that wants nothing but death for you, and he's got an army of demons to help him. Satan, and one of the most brilliant strategies that Satan has is to convince you that there isn't a battle. But I'm telling you right now, there is, right? There is, and if you've placed your faith in Jesus, the good news is that he's victorious, and he's given you armor that's not just for looks, it's for battle. And so this morning, I would love for all of us to walk out here this morning, knowing firmly and concretely through the Bible who our enemy is, how to use the armor we've been given, and where to turn in every moment, right? So we're going to be in verses 10 and 11 first, and uh, we'll just read that together and jump in. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So my first point this morning is know who we're fighting against. Uh, how many of you in the, in the room have heard of Huddle? Right? You can shoot your hand up if you heard Huddle. Yeah, like half of you guys work there. And so, anyways, Huddle is a sports software company that allows coaches and teams to prepare and stay ahead of the competition, right? It's beautiful. How do they do that? Well, they have game film of players and teams so that other players and teams can study them and learn, right? And when you're looking at film, you're wanting to learn consistent patterns, observe tendencies, spot weaknesses, and figure out what needs to happen. See, basically, Huddle's game plan boils down to one point know your enemy, right? Like, that's, like that's, the, that's the goal, right? So you need to know who you're up against if you want any shot of winning. And this is what these first few verses are trying, for, uh, trying to help us see. So in this first point, I want us to see who the devil is, uh, how he works, and what he wants, right? So first, who he is. Verse 11 says, we need God's armor to stand against the schemes of the devil. So who is the devil? Well, if, uh, if I had everyone just close your eyes and think about what the devil is, most of us are going to picture a dude with, like, horns on his head, a pointy tail, a pitchfork, uh, a, a villainous smile, and bright red skin, right? But the Bible never actually describes him like that. See, biblically, the devil is less a repulsive monster and more a, a crafty, manipulative creature, 
right? So we need to understand, like, cartoons and Halloween haven't helped us understand who the devil is, right? Um, and so, next question, where did he come from? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't give, like, detailed account of Satan's origin, but it does indicate that Satan was originally an angel uh, created by God, okay? So he's an angel at one point, but Satan became filled with jealousy and decides to lead a rebellion against God, so that he might take God's place as ruler over all creation. And in Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, God says about the devil, you said in your heart, I will make myself like the most high. Okay. And I love God's power in this. Satan's like, oh, I'm going to lead an army. And God's like, I don't like, I'll just throw you down. Like he just literally tossed him down. Like that's how powerful our God is. But so God sends Satan down from heaven along with all the angels that rebelled with him. So Satan is responsible for responsible for the fall of man. He tempted Eve as she uh, believed his lies, right? He twisted God's word and Eve fell into his trap. And then since then, Satan has been perfecting the art of deception in all of our lives. So think about it this way. I'm not really, I'm not like very smart or anything like that, but if you give me 50 years to study math, I'm going to know a lot. Or if you gave me 150 years, oh my gosh, I'm going to know like a ton. Or if you gave me 1,500 years, I'm going to be smarter than Einstein, right? Like there's no doubt. And so in the same way, Satan and his army have had thousands of years to master the art of deception. Like they've tried everything. They know what works and what doesn't work. They know what, what compels this and what doesn't compel this. They know, I mean, like it just had this strategy that's worked over so long. And so hear me when I say this. If we try to face Satan on our own strength, we fail every single time. In and of ourselves, we are no match for the enemy. That's, what Paul, that's why Paul basically says the same thing in verse 10. You need God's strength, right? And he says this basically the same thing in verse 11 and 13. You need God's armor, right? We are no match for the enemy in and of ourselves. He's crafty. He's, he's, he's manipulative, all those things. And so the next question that comes to mind is how does Satan, how does the devil stack up to God, right? Now, when we talk about the devil being crafty and powerful, we have to be careful not to overstate that, Okay? Like God is God, right? Everything else has been created by God and is therefore limited for the simple reason that it has been created, okay? Compared to our God, Satan is just a dog on a leash, right? Like it, it, like, and so I just want to give you three ways uh, the devil is not like our God. And the first way is that God is omnipotent, okay? God's omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. And the devil isn't, right? Like God can do whatever he wants. He can do anything he wants to do, and the devil, just like us, can only do what God permits him to do, right? This universe is God's universe. Not even hell is Satan's. God created hell as a place to send Satan and his followers for all of eternity forevermore. Number two, God is omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing. And this isn't true of Satan. Satan doesn't know everything. And true, he knows a lot. And true, he might be a great guesser, but the ways of God must come constantly surprise him, right? And, and, and he has no more certainty about what will happen in the future than either one of us do. And the third thing is that God is omnipresent, meaning he is in, he's everywhere at once. That's what his ability does, right? Satan is a created being. Satan can only be in one place at one time, so he must either tempt one person at one place in one time, or he has to extend his influence through one of the other spiritual beings that fell with him. Tracking with me? So, Although the devil's influence is widespread, right, most likely he hasn't tempted any one of us in the room directly, right? He's tempted us indirectly through the influence of his army and other spiritual beings, 
which leads us to the second part of this point, how he works, right? So look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we see uh, two ways the devil works. And the first is that the devil works strategically through his army. All right? John Stott, theologian, pastor, says this. Bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Satan works through his army, and this army is fierce. This army will do anything to take you down. And there are layers to this army, right? There is expanse to this army, and this army has been trained for thousands of years on how to take you down. Paul's making it clear there's a real battle and a real army, right? And next, the second way, we see that the devil works strategically through distraction, okay? Through his army. Second thing is through distraction. So for Paul to point out that this battle isn't between flesh and blood, should show us that he, Satan wants us to think it's between flesh and blood. You get that? He's, Paul's saying, it's not between flesh and blood. Satan's saying, no, it is, right? That's like they're going, so he's wanting to distract us. And listen, this isn't denying that there isn't a struggle physically. There is, right? Hunger, poverty, abuse, all those things are physical and they are real. But over and under all of that, the battle is actually spiritual, Okay? And in America, we are so prone to explain everything away with uh, scientifically and factually and medically that we normally cringe if someone suggests that the cause might be spiritual, right? And so, like a brilliant, manipulative creature, Satan distracts us with our American tendency to just focus on the surface. He wants to distract us. But listen, City Light, we need to stop finding the expressions of evil and start fighting the source of evil, right? And in other words, fighting flesh and blood is like me going to my backyard and picking dandelions, like the, 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 you know, the, the weeds back there, hoping that they don't come back. But that actually won't work. Like I need to go and dig up the root of it for it not to come back. That's the difference between f- battling flesh and blood and battling um, uh, spiritual forces, right? Evil it, itself. And so hear me when I say this. This is what this means. The fight that we have isn't with other people, right? It's not with other people. They aren't the enemy. No matter how bad or vicious they are, they are victims of the enemy. Do you get the difference between that? Our battle isn't with people. No, they're not the enemy. They're actually victims of the enemy, no matter how bad and crazy they are. And then we've got to understand this last part. What does the devil want? And so City Light, let me give you amazing news Uh, These battles that we go through are hard and we will inevitably lose. But let me remind you that Jesus has won the war. Amen. Like he is victorious over all of that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died uh, a painful death as a righteous substitute and resurrected in victory so that we could place our faith in him and have eternal life. We could have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. Satan and his enemy are defeated. Make no mistake of that. And notice that Paul doesn't call us to win the battle, right? He doesn't call us to win the war. He says simply stand because the battle's already been won, because the war has already been won. The authority of these powers has been broken, and their final defeat is coming soon. City Light, we aren't called to this battle as if victory is in doubt. 
right? It's won. Their final decisive victory has been won. Ours as followers of Jesus, it has been won. And so in light of that, Satan's primary desire for the Christian is to forget and not live out of Jesus's victory. Get that? What does he want for you? To forget it and to not live out of Jesus's victory. And his primary goal for the non-believer, the one that hasn't, person in the room that hasn't placed their faith in Jesus, is for you to ever actually hear and believe and trust in Jesus's victory. See, everything that Jesus desires and fights for, Satan opposes and fights for the opposite. And in John 10.10, Jesus gives this, this, this contrast, right? He says, the thief, Satan, our enemy, comes to steal and kill and destroy. He says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? That's Jesus is showing this contrast, right? Jesus is all about peace. Satan's all about fear. Jesus is all about people. Satan's all about power. Jesus is all about life. Satan's all about death, right? You see this, this, this difference, right? These are the schemes of the devil that verse 11 warns us about. Now, in light of the book of Ephesians, in taking this, as Paul's finishing his segment of everything he just said, in light of it now, in Ephesians 1, we learn that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, right? He's chosen us. He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. He's given his, uh, us his spirit. And so what does Satan want to do? He wants to convince us that we're poor orphans forgotten by God right? In Ephesians 2, we learn that, that, that Jesus has broken down the hostile walls between, that separate us between races and cultures and all that stuff. What Satan want to do? Rebuild what Jesus tore down, right? He wants to rebuild those walls so we're hostile. In Ephesians 5, we learn that God is uniting and uh, redeemed people to himself that should live in unity and harmony and work together to build Jesus' kingdom. What does Satan want to do? The forces of evil want to come in and breed envy and strife and scatter us apart, right? Like this is what Satan wants. What does he want? The opposite of what Jesus wants. Church, our enemy is a vicious, cunning, and crafty beast with an evil army to help him carry out the opposite will of Jesus. But although we face a great and mighty, terrible enemy, our God is victorious. And he has given us his armor to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so the next thing I want us to see is how to use the armor we've been given. How to use your armor. And so in verses 14 through 17, Paul mentions six pieces of armor that were common for every soldier of that day. Now remember, Paul has already urged us twice to put on the whole armor of God. Why would he have to do that? Like Paul, you already said it once. You don't need to say it twice. Okay, why? Because we forget daily to put on the whole armor of God and we try and battle Satan in our own flesh, and our own power, right? We try and do that. So if you can imagine a turtle without its shell, like I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen it, but if you can imagine that, it's defenseless, it's sad, and it's an easy target. But that's what we're doing if we sinfully neglect to put on the whole armor of God. Listen, some of y'all are trying to fight Satan in your PJs. Looking like a turtle trying to cross the road without its shell. Hashtag put that armor on, you know, like get it on. And so I'm just going to walk through these, these, these pieces of armor. And the first one is the belt of truth in verse 14. Now, a soldier's belt would hold everything in place. So why is truth the belt for the Christian? Okay, let's interpret what he means by truth by the book, Ephesians, that he's quoting. Ephesians 1.13 says, the word of truth is the gospel. So what is this truth? The gospel. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians is explaining how this truth the gospel plays out in our lives. See, truth truth holds together our doctrine and our duty. 
right? Things we know and things we do. Uh, uh, truth holds together our identity and our activity. See, it's not enough. He's showing us it's not enough to simply know the truth. He says in verse 14 that we have to fasten on the belt of truth. So we live it out. We don't just know it, but we actually live it and experience this truth, right? That's the belt of truth. Then we get the breastplate of righteousness at the end of verse 14. Now, a breastplate was a metal piece that a soldier would wear to cover the front of his, uh, his or her body. Uh, so the primary use would be pr- to protect your most vital organs, especially your heart. And this is what the breastplate of righteousness does, right? And listen, I know what's coming into this. We need to be really careful to not think he's talking about our own righteousness, right? Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, right? We, we don't have righteousness in and of ourselves. So don't think Paul is saying, hey, you know what? Uh, City Light, go make a breastplate of righteousness with all your religious accomplishments glued on the front of it. You know, oh, I, I finished this camp this week and I went to this summer thing and I, read, I finished my Bible that time. You know, it's like, no, that's not what he's talking about. It's not something that we generate on our own. You and I are not righteous in and of ourselves. We're sinful. The breastplate of righteousness is God's righteousness given freely to us when we place our faith in Jesus, right? That's what he's referring to. And so uh, we can't generate it on our own. And Paul explains how he got his righteousness in Philippians 3, 9. So I'll read it for you. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so to be clear, we can't earn our righteousness through following rules, coming to church enough, improving a little bit more, uh, stop doing this, start doing this, or giving a lot. No, faith in Jesus makes us righteous. That's the only way. Satan's name, that word, literally means accuser. So friends, don't be deceived. He will point fingers at you. He will accuse you. You will fail and fall and sin. And in that moment, Satan will take advantage of that opportunity and point out to you, hey, you aren't righteous. And in those moments when he accuses us and he tells us we're not righteous, we need to pound on our breastplate of righteousness and say, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You're right. I'm not righteous. You're right. I've sinned more than I can ever even dream of. But you're wrong in that Jesus has actually came through me and he's actually covered my, my unrighteousness with his righteousness and now I'm guarded. So Satan, you can't tempt me. You can't accuse me anymore because I am perfectly righteous in Jesus, right? That's what we need to do in those moments. And then we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace in verse 15. Now these shoes weren't uh, made for running. They were more like, uh, uh, most similar to like a football cleat. So they'd have these pieces at the bottom of them that would actually stick into the ground um, to help give traction and prevent sliding backwards. And listen, if Paul's primary call in this whole passage is to stand, you can see how essential these shoes are, right? Verse 15 says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Satan wants to push you back, right? He wants you to fall But if our feet are established in the gospel of peace, we are immovable in battle, right? Romans 5.1 says we have have peace with God because of Jesus. So before any of us ever placed our faith in Jesus, there was an unthinkable gap between us and God because of our sin, right? He's holy, we're not. And we're like, what do we do? We, we, We could try and bridge that gap with good works, but it'll never happen. We're sinful. Jesus came, died in our place so that we could bridge that gap through his righteousness and we could know God eternally and be with him forevermore, right? Praise God. 
we can have peace with God, which provides the peace of God. And so for those of us in the room that struggle with anxiety, uh, Satan knows that, and he'll do everything he can to see that hole in your armor and to go right for it and to bring about anxious thoughts and desires. But in that moment, we need to strap on our shoes provided by the gospel of peace and stand firm. Right? We need to sink deeply into the gospel of peace. We need to remember that the peace of God that we have with God can never be changed or taken away. We need to remember that the peace of God rests over everything that happens in our lives. He's sovereign. He's good. He's faithful. He's in control. Therefore, we have peace. Right? The gospel of peace, uh, these shoes. And then we get the shield of faith Right in verse 16. Uh, these shields weren't like uh, Captain America's round shield, right? They're about four foot tall and two or, or so foot wide. And so literally soldiers would just like hide behind them. And they were made of uh, wood and they'd have leather, uh, like a leather uh, front and then metal and then another le- leather front. And so they would literally just hide behind it and people would shoot these flaming arrows because it was so thick and so uh, protective that the arrow would go in and the flame would just extinguish. There was nothing for it to to burn. So this is literally what's happening. And this is what we're spiritually doing when the enemy is firing flaming arrows at us for different parts of our lives. And instead of just letting those hit us, we're hiding behind the shield and trusting in God's goodness and protection, right? That's what we're spiritually doing when Satan's trying to attack us. So I spent time this week. God, what are, what, what, what are the flaming arrows in our lives? Like what, 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 what does Satan most likely use in our church or in our generation? And the first one, first flaming arrow is lust. Like, I feel like this is all around us, right? We, we all have lusts within us that are easy to ignite. Like the tiniest little flame, and we just burst into uh, flames. Like, that's just what happens. And I've seen and experienced that we are experts at rationalizing our sin, right? And, and we think thoughts like, in, as far as rationalizing our sin, I, I mean, it's not hurting anyone. I mean, it's just between me and the computer, or, or me and my phone, right? It's not really hurting anybody. Or, or I mean, we're basically married, and, and, and we love each other a lot. I mean, I know we don't have a certificate yet, and we haven't had a big ceremony, but we're basically married, and we love each other, so, yeah, we can, we can live together. We can have sex. Yeah, sure, like, we don't have to wait. Or, or, or you know what? I'm just going I'm, I'm to call that guy one more time. I'm just going to text her one more. It's not, I can't hurt if I only text we just do this with, with everything, right? We just rationalize our sin as Satan's firing these arrows of lust at us. And, and I just want to call us to hide under his shield, like hide under Jesus. I mean, these, these, Satan's seeing it and he's happily firing at us because we have our shield down. We're, we're like, yeah, I'll gladly take that. But we don't realize that we're being consumed with fire. It's, it's hurting, I mean, you'll get, you'll get burned. Like, I've been burned. You, look, you hear my story. I've been burned by these, and specifically lust, for years. And Jesus is redeemed and pointed out, no, that's not good. That's actually hurting you and pushing you away from Jesus. So I just want to say, friends, those won't deliver on their promises. They will burn you, but Jesus, he gives life. Jesus heals the wounds and the areas that Satan has consistently shot those arrows into for our entire lives That lust is a flaming dart from Satan. And Jesus is saying, take up my shield. And the other primary flaming dart, uh, arrow that we have, uh, that happens to us, is doubting God's goodness. Right? So so when when tragedy strikes, when something happens in my life, the very first thing that comes to mind, this is my sin, is does God still love me? 
right? I just wonder that. So, so did I do something wrong? Is God mad at me? Why did he allow this to happen? I mean, when trials come, when family members die, when finances fall, when you lose your job, when your spouse cheats on you, when you have a miscarriage, when everything in life seems to fall apart, Satan is taking that opportunity to fire at you as many arrows as he possibly can to doubt God's goodness. And each one will question the goodness of God to you personally, but city light. We can hold on to scripture and we can, remember, we can cling on to scripture and remember that our God has good plans for us. Our God is a good father. Our God cares for us. Our God died for us. Our God weeps with us. Our God is making all things new. When the flaming arrows are flying in about doubt, uh, about, to doubt God's goodness, we grab our shield with our weak hands and we hide underneath it. Amen? We have that shield to hide under all these arrows to, arrows to say, no, God's not good. And we say, yes, he is. I can point the Bible and say, yes, he is. And then we get the helmet of salvation in verse 17. See, helmets in these days were so heavy duty that, uh, that they would really, you, you could only, only your eyes and your nose and your mouth briefly were exposed. And uh, our helmet of salvation is our assurance of salvation, right? The confidence that God has saved us in holding on to us. Uh, a helmet, like anything, is a confidence builder. Like you put a helmet on uh, me and I might take Luke. I don't know. That'd be stupid without a helmet, but maybe I could. You know, I don't know. It's just a, it's a confidence builder, right? You're like, I'm protected. The most vital part of me is protected. And so in John 10, 28, Jesus reminds us that no one will snatch us from his hand, that no one will take us from our father, right? That's our confidence. Not that we have strength to hold on to God, but that the fact that he'll never let go of us. And picture this helmet of salvation, this assurance of salvation, placed personally on your head with the nail-pierced hands of Jesus the moment you placed your faith in him. Like that's what happens, the helmet of salvation, the assurance that you will be saved. Why? Not because you're good, but because Jesus is good. And then lastly, we get the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God at the end of verse 17. Now notice that every other piece of armor is defensive right? But this one is offensive, right? The sword is offensive. And so Paul's saying that our sword, the sword we have to fight off the enemy, uh, is our Bible, right? God's word. And uh, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him several times. And every single time, uh, Jesus resists that temptation. How? By quoting his Bible, right? He simply quotes his Bible. So Jesus' sword was sharp, right? And he knew how to use it. Oh, and by the way, just talk about how legendary Jesus is. He fights Satan by quoting three verses from Deuteronomy. You know, when's the last time you spent time in Deuteronomy? You know, it's like, it doesn't happen very often. But to be clear, Satan knows the Bible better than you do. Right? Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He's had thousands of years to study it, to learn it. And he will come to you and he will even use it to twist those words, God words, just slightly so that you would believe a lie. Right? This, is the, this is the natural outflow of it. And so this should, hurt. This, should, this should motivate us to know the word of God even better. Right, So when Satan comes and tries to twist the word of God, we stand on the truth and say, no, that's not what it says. This is what it says. Right, But if we don't know the word, we don't have a, our sword is always going to be sharp. Right, Enough, Our knowledge of the sword doesn't change that. But our willingness and our ability to wield it does. And so Paul is urging us to take, he says, take up the word of God. Take up your sword. And we do that by reading God's word. 
Uh, we do that by meditating on God's word, and we do that by memorizing God's word and implementing it and actually applying it into our lives. And so City Light, let's use our Bibles to fight sin. Now, can you picture this soldier? Like, can you, can you picture him? I mean, he's, he, he just is, I mean, it's just like the soldier's just ready, right? Uh, his belt is on tight, holding everything together. His heart is pounding under his breastplate that's impenetrable. He sinks his boots into the ground to assure his traction that he won't move back. He readjusts his grip on his protective shield. He, he, he moves around his helmet just to make sure it fits just right, and he admires the sharp edges of his sword that will cut through anything. I mean, everything about this soldier says, bring it on. Like, let's go. Like, let's just do this thing, right? And so the army, the enemy starts to march forward, right? It's louder and louder, and his heart is pumping, and he's breathing heavy. And then this, the Christian soldier does the most extraordinary thing. He falls on his knees and prays, showing us that no matter how amazing our armor is, it has no power without being commanded and led by our victorious commander. Amen? Like this soul just like literally falls to his knees and just says, no, I'm going to rely on you. And so the last thing we need to know is where to turn in every moment. Where to turn in every moment. Uh, let's look at verse 18 together. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Okay. So prayer if you're thinking about it, isn't just another piece of armor, right? But John Piper likens it to a wartime walkie-talkie, which I love, okay? A war, like prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie. And so he says, this is John Piper, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Beautiful and convicting, right? And notice in verse 18, it says, Paul says, now we pray in the Spirit. And so simply put, the Spirit of God allows us to pray to God, right? So we come uh, to the Father through the Son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And because of God's Spirit, we have constant, uninterrupted access to God. Like, this is crazy, but the Spirit provides that. He provides that in our lives. And Paul gives two distinctives of Spirit-filled prayer. Uh, and the first is that prayer is comprehensive, right? Prayer covers a lot of things. And so, in verse 18, he gives four alls. You notice that? He gives four alls. Uh, the first is praying at all times. Uh, so this is a beautiful reminder that at all times we can pray and come to God, right? Uh, when we wake up in the morning, when we're mowing the lawn, when we're brushing our teeth, when we're in the shower, uh, when we're driving to work, and when we're tempted, we can come to God in every single moment of our lives. And then the second one is praying with all prayer and supplication. Okay, this is similar to all times. Paul is showing us that we can pray for a myriad of things. We don't simply need to pray. Uh, we don't only pray when we feel like we're losing and we're in trouble. We don't only pray for the big things in our lives. No, we can come to God with every single aspect of our life. He wants to be in every area. Third thing, praying with all perseverance, right? Praying with all perseverance. A friend in City Group this week had just said that she's been praying for a friend to be saved for seven years. 
the same friend, to be saved for seven years. So there's no like three strikes and you're out rule with prayer, right? It's not like, well, I prayed for you for three times, so I think I'm going to move on to Jimmy. You know, it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, like we, we keep praying so that God would save and God would work and God would do his work. And so he's just calling us, don't give up. Like keep praying and keep being persistent in prayer because he wants to work and he's going to. So don't give up. The fourth thing is praying for all saints. Remember, as we are fighting, we have to remember that we're not fighting alone, right? Like, like every single one of us is going through a battle. We are part of Jesus' army. And the people you're sitting next to and around, they're also going through a battle right in this moment. And so let's pray for one another. Let's spend time lifting each other up and praying for strength. And in verses 19 through 20, we see that spirit-filled prayer it is about gospel boldness, right? It's for gospel boldness. And so let's finish up with 19 through 20. And also for me, this is Paul praying. That, so he's saying, pray, also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay. Uh, I love that this is Paul asking for prayer. Okay, like this is the epitome of a Christian soldier, right? Dude has lashes on his back and he's been shipwrecked just to show he's been stunned. He's, he's probably like, and just got so many scars to show from battle. Like he's the epitome of it. And he's a gospel beast. Like he's gone all over and shared the gospel. He doesn't care if people beat him up. He still shares the gospel. And yet in the moment, he humbly stops and says, pray for me too. Shows us that no matter what level of leadership we have, we never need to stop asking for prayer, right? We need to ask for prayer, and he specifically says that they would pray for, uh, for his boldness in sharing the gospel. And so the question is, why? Paul could have prayed for so many things. He could ask for so many things. Why does he specifically ask for boldness in sharing the gospel? Because sharing the gospel is spiritual warfare, right? Don't be deceived. Like, Satan has blinded every single person that doesn't know Jesus, and his primary desire is that they wouldn't know Jesus, Right? Um, and so that's the opposite, right? And our culture thinks that sharing the gospel, talking about spiritual things is awkward and weird and annoying. And maybe it feels like that sometimes, but this is the mean, means for God inviting more people in his family and growing his army to push back the forces of evil, right? Sharing the gospel. And so City Light, let's pray for boldness for one another. Everyone in the church, let's pray for boldness so we'd share the gospel more frequently and more confidently, knowing God is going to use that to build his kingdom. See, like, God has already won the battle. <laughs> and this is the best news in the world as we read this. And if you're disheartened by the battle and thinking, oh, this is going to be so hard, hard, this is tough, Satan's already won. Like, the victory is already secure. Our call is to simply stand firm in the victory. And so for the believer in the room, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you need to know that as a follower of Christ, you're not called to play around on the playground. This, this isn't a cruise uh, along the Caribbean. This isn't some five-day all-inclusive vacation on the beach. This is a battlefield. For the rest of your life, you are in the battlefield fighting against sin and Satan. But the good news is you have the armor and the power through prayer to fight against Satan and his army. And so I just really want to ask you and press in, are you fighting? Like, is there tangible evidence in your life that you have been fighting Satan and fighting sin? Are you, uh, like, leveraging your life to do that? Do you have accountability? Are you having standard things in your life that are just boundaries that you know I'm not going to go there? I'm not even going to come 
close are you fighting? And I'd also ask in light of that, if you are fighting, are you fighting in view of the finished and complete victory of Jesus? And whether or not you are or you aren't, let me refresh you with the gospel that even when you fail to fight, Jesus never stops fighting for you, right? Like he, he never, even when we fail to fight uh, for the gospel going forth, it doesn't make his victory any less true, any less powerful, any less real. And in the midst of that, his victory is still secure and he still fights for us. His grace abounds over our laziness to fight, but all the more, City Light, let's fight sin and Satan, right? For Jesus' glory and for his complete and full victory. By means of encouragement, when Satan tempts you of your past, you remind him of his future, right? When Satan reminds you of his past, you remind him of his future. Yes, I've failed. Yes, I've fallen. And yes, I will even more. But I can remind you of your future that you'll be put away forevermore. Amen? For the person in the room that hasn't believed in Jesus, are you tired of fighting against the one that constantly is fighting for you? Like, I'm praying that you would open your eyes to see the battle that has been waged for your very soul and see that you've been deceived into believing lies and fighting for a team that's already lost. Like, that's the reality. I mean, Satan has lied to you and led you to believe there either isn't a God or that the way to that God is through good works and both are a lie right? We get to come to Jesus by faith. And so my prayer for you is that you would reject those lies that Satan has told you for years and you would run to Jesus. That simply by faith in him, you might know him and have eternal life in him. Charles Spurgeon said, let's sing and spite the devil. I love that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and we're going to sing in this victory that God is always good to us. And so let's pray together.